pray for the service. I'd like to, to lift up the people in the state of Alabama and really all across the southeast as we, as we look outside today, we have our buildings that are in place. And um, we haven't lost loved ones. But having grown up in Alabama, I watched and I called many times checking on people in my home area. And I have uh, family and friends both in Birmingham and Tuscaloosa, Alabama. And the key word that I kept hearing over and over was devastation. Devastation. When my nephews goes to the University of Alabama and his block was fine. But the block behind him, everything was wiped away. I've seen pictures of before and after, beautiful, gorgeous brick homes, totally destroyed, gone. Large numbers of people, I haven't seen the last number, but I know that over 250 people were killed in Alabama. There's probably around 400, I think, total. So I'd like for us to pray for the people in those states as well as for this morning. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Father, it's easy to forget about those that are across the southeast, Lord, uh, Mississippi, Alabama, Louisiana, Georgia, Tennessee. But Father, we lift them up. Father, we know that in some areas, Lord, that 85% of the housing was totally wiped away. Father, we think of those who lost loved ones, and we ask, God, that you would comfort them and encourage them. Father, for those who have, who have lost everything, everything, Father, we pray that you be with them, that you provide for their needs, that you give them grace for this time, provide food and water, and a place, Lord, to live, a shelter. Father, as we look to today, we thank you, Father, for your word. Lord, it's a light to our path. Lord, we need you to speak to us today through me. Father, put aside all my thoughts, and may I think your thoughts. I'm so aware, Father, that I'm a sinner saved by grace. And it's you, Father, who speaks through me and uses me as I preach your word. May I preach it, Father, with clarity. And Father, may our hearts be open to you into your leading in our lives. As we look at this new series, Father, we pray, God, that we would not waste our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, so as Pastor Eric said, we're starting a new series today. Don't waste your life. Don't waste your life. In the weeks ahead, we'll be looking at different topics, finances and money, parenting, singleness, and down the line. So I'm excited today to introduce this series. I saw on the, the internet, on YouTube, uh, I think a wonderful illustration will help us today. If you would, just picture in your mind this rope. It's got an end, but if you would, just imagine it going on and on. Imagine also that this rope, which goes on and on with no end, is your life. It's a timeline for your life. And if you would also imagine that 
this little red section is your life and my life here on earth. You know, a lot of times in the midst of, of life, as we look at ropes here that goes on and on, we look at life that goes on and on, it's easy, isn't it, for us to focus right here, right on this red. That's it. Sometimes, in the midst of life here on earth, it's easy for us to even focus a lot on this little small section toward the end of our lives here called retirement. We work hard. We work hard to save our money so that we can retire and enjoy life. We'll make sure that we can travel. We want to make sure that we can eat well in our retirement. In the midst of, of life, it's easy for us to forget all of this that goes on and on and on forever and ever. Our life here on earth is short. And the key thing to remember is what we do here in this red section of the rope of our timeline, it affects eternity forever and ever and ever. Our life here on earth is short. The book of James says, our life is like a mist, a vapor. We see it today, gone tomorrow. In the midst of it, we're bombarded though with the temporary. Over and over, we're talked to about making money, getting stuff, being comfortable, having fun. That's the American dream. Buying a house, maybe getting a vacation home somewhere else outside of the city, acquiring things. The American dream. In the midst of chasing the American dream, we lose sight of the eternal. But it's there. It's there. And I've got a feeling that when we face God in eternity, that we're not going to wish that we'd made more money for ourselves. We're not going to wish that we acquired more things. We're not going to wish that we were more comfortable but when we come before God and live for eternity, we're going to wish that that small section, that red section of our life here, we've been lived for God and for eternity. Eternity lies before us. And God will call us into account for our time and for our gifts and for our use of the gospel. Christ says in Luke, Chapter 9, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses or forfeits himself? John Piper, in his classic book, Desiring God, up front, kind of takes and twists uh, the Westminster Catechism. Uh, the chief end of man is to glorify God and 
enjoy him forever. And, and Piper changes it and says, the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him. By enjoying him. Piper points us toward the Psalms. Psalm 37, delight yourself in the Lord, and he'll give you the desires of your heart. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Scripture is clear that the deepest and most enduring happiness is found in God alone. It's clear that our goal, that God's goal for us, is not the American dream. God doesn't want us to waste our time here fighting and working for the American dream. Throughout Christ's teachings, he, we see him continually calling us to count the cost, to count the cost in following him. He doesn't make it something that's easy or comfortable or fun, but it is fulfilling, it is challenging, it does bring great joy. Chapter 6 of John, you think about Christ and the, the disciples back then, Christ began, he had all these huge crowds until he began giving these hard sayings, these things that if we want to follow him, that we must do. And all of a sudden, in chapter 6, verse 6 to 6, it says, After this, many turned back and no longer walked with him. They went back to their old lives, their old religion, and their old hopeless situation. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, if you will, if you're not there already, turn to Luke, chapter 9. We'll be looking at verses 51 through 62. We see that following Christ requires that we count the cost. We count the cost. It's not a casual decision. We see that as we count the cost today, that it may involve at least four things. Rejection. Risk. Relationships that are uprooted. Renouncing your past. In the first half of Luke, if we were to go back and look over the first half of the Gospel of Luke, we'd see Christ performing miracles, raising the dead, just all kinds of things, um, feeding the thousands. There was the excitement. It was easy to be excited about Jesus Christ and his ministry. There was intrigue, there was a mystery about who this Jesus Christ was. In verses 51 through 56, we see that Jesus is rejected in a Samaritan village. Read with me, beginning verse 51. Luke chapter 9, verses 51 through 56. And when the days grew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But people did not receive him because his face was set to Jerusalem. And when the disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he, being Christ, turned and rebuked them. They went to another village. But first, we see here Following Jesus Christ may lead to rejection and hostility. Christ was headed to Jerusalem. Just last week we celebrated Good Friday when Christ died on the cross, Sunday when he rose again. 
In this passage, he's moving in that direction. He's going to Jerusalem. His head is set. His face is set for Jerusalem. I think most of us are familiar with the fact that there was a, a tension between the Jewish people and Samaritans because they had different views. The Samaritans had, had changed a lot of what God's word says. They refused to accept Jesus. They didn't welcome him. They didn't receive him. And so the disciples said, Lord, let's just rain down some fire. Let's just destroy them because you rejected them. Because they rejected you. You know, we all like to be liked, don't we? We all want to be liked. We want to be popular. We, we like to be loved. We hate being ignored. And we hate being told to get lost. The bottom line is, many of us, many of us, if we choose to follow Jesus Christ, may be rejected. Sometimes by family, sometimes by our workers in our job, sometimes by our spouses. But Christ at this point realized that he was headed toward more rejection. You think about it, Jesus Christ, there was no room for him at the end when he was born. There's no room for Christ in Samaria in this village. And a lot of times today in our lives, there's no room for Jesus Christ. Christ here just warns and rebukes the disciples. As I thought about illustrations of rejection and hostility, I could tell you many stories of, of Muslims who have come to Christ who have been turned away by their family, or Jewish people who have come to Christ and have been rejected. But I think also of college students. Just last year, I believe it was, in Augusta State University in Georgia, a counseling student was told that her Christian beliefs are unethical and incompatible with the prevailing views of the counseling program and profession in general. And the student, Jennifer Keaton, has been told to stop sharing her faith with others and that she must change her beliefs in order to graduate. Augusta State ordered Keaton to undergo a re-education plan in which she must attend a diversity training program, complete additional remedial reading, and write papers. And if she does not change her beliefs, the university will expel her from the program. That happens everywhere, all across the, the nation. Julia Ward, a student at Eastern Michigan University, again removed from a counseling program because her beliefs don't measure up with today's ethical views. You and I may not face rejection or hostility in this sense, but there's a strong possibility that we will face rejection in high school as you seek to live for the Lord. You will face rejection within your family if you really start walking with God. Well, Christ continues on his teaching to his disciples as he encounters three different individuals. In verses 57 and 58, we meet the first one. As they were going along the road, someone told him, I'll follow you wherever you go. 
And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. We see the risk here when involved in following Jesus Christ. There may be that hardship, there may be that material insecurity. Jesus had nowhere to lay his head. The first individual may have been caught up in the excitement I shared about earlier. He may have seen Jesus Christ healing people. He may have seen Jesus raising the dead. He may have seen Jesus doing all these miracles. And he was excited. He said, Jesus, I follow you wherever you go. Wherever you go. Maybe the, the parallel passage in Matthew says that this individual was a scribe. So maybe in his mind, he was thinking that following Jesus was like following a rabbi. Because those who studied under a rabbi would live in the rabbi's home and as they learned the Torah. But see, whatever the case, whether it's excitement about what Jesus was doing or whether it was a wrong view of what following Christ was, Christ's response was, if you follow me, you may not have a place to lay your head at night. So I think of this, I'm reminded with each of the three individuals that Jesus knew each person. He knew their needs, he knew their thoughts, and he dealt with them individually. John MacArthur quotes uh, R.C.H. Linsky, a, a commentator, and, and Linsky says, Such a person sees soldiers on a parade, the fine uniforms, the shiny guns and armor, and is eager to join, forgetting about the exhausting marches, the battles sometimes, and sometimes the blood and death. Of course, not everybody does that. Sugarcoating the message of the gospel, trying to make it appear less demanding than it is, not only compromises God's word, it does a disservice to the Lord, it also does a disservice to those we're trying to witness to. One caution, as we talk about this, I'm not saying, and God's word doesn't say that if we trust Christ and really follow him, that we can't have a home. I think what it does say is our hearts need to hold loosely to any possessions that we have. If we're tied down to our house, we can't go on a missions trip and live elsewhere. I still think of, of, of ICI and the years that Chris and I served there and coming. And there was, of course, the risk of moving from a rural area for each of us to the inner city, coming to Humboldt Park. I still remember a lot of the people from church back then didn't really, they didn't think too highly about coming into Humboldt Park at that point because of the gangs and the drugs. But Chris and I can look, we look back on those seven, eight years at ICI, and they were joy. In God's grace, we never faced anything from the gangs. As a matter of fact, we were friends with some of the gang people. It was difficult sometimes, but when God calls us into difficult situations, He gives us grace. He gives us grace. I still remember people coming from the suburbs to help out, and they would, they would roll their windows up in the van as they come into the city. 
Chris and I, for 28 years, Humboldt Park in 1705 North Rockwell has been home. It's been home. In God's grace, it'll be home for some time yet. If we truly trust Christ, we'll face rejection, we'll face the risk of danger. Thirdly, if we follow Christ, there may be times when relationships are uprooted. We'll move from that norm that we're so used to, that comfort zone that we are used to. In verse 59 of chapter 9, reads, To another, Christ said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. So another Christ goes to, and he says, Follow me. He asked the guy to follow him. And he said, Well, let me go and bury my father. And Christ's response was, Let the dead bury the dead. At first glance, it looks like that Jesus' response might be harsh, certainly hard. There's some questions, though, regarding this father. Was he dead already? Was he sick? Was it days before you die? Or is this man simply postponing a commitment? Since his father may be relatively young. John MacArthur and others say that by saying, let me first go and bury my father, that he didn't mean that his father had died or was about to die. That's a figure of speech in the Near Eastern area. And it referred to the fact that a son was called to be responsible to care for the, the family business, to be there for the father until he died, and then to receive his inheritance. MacArthur even uh, goes on and says that this expression is still used today in parts of the Middle East. He shares about a missionary in Turkey who had reached out to a young man and asked him to go with him to Europe. Now the missionary's goal was that he might, during his trip to, to Europe, disciple this young man. The response of the young man was, I must bury my father. The missionary immediately expressed condolences and, and surprise that his father had died. The young man immediately made the missionary aware that his father was fine, he was alive, wasn't close to being death as far as death, dead as far as he knew. But he went on to explain that that phrase, I must bury my father, means that I must stay home and take care of business. MacArthur goes on and says, the phrase, I must bury my father, was frequently equivalent to saying, I want to receive my inheritance. I want to receive my inheritance. But nothing is to postpone our commitment to Christ. We've seen this past week in Alabama and across the southeast that we don't know that we have tomorrow. 
It's a dangerous thing to put off to tomorrow what we can do today. Our families may not understand, but we still do what's right. I remember between our ministries at ICI and Good News, Chris and I moved back to Alabama for eight months where I'd had a, a, a burden to reach out to African Americans. Things didn't work out, but by October, I was scheduled to be back here. I've got a twin brother, and his daughter was elected, I think it was homecoming queen. She was in the court, but I think she's homecoming queen. Now again, get your settings right. This is Alabama. This is the southeast U.S. They love football. Just remember the University of Alabama. They love football, and homecoming is big. Now, small rural area, probably the city where Sweetwater High School was, was 300 people, maybe in it, maybe. But we had hundreds to come out for football games. And for homecoming, ha, big. Well, my twin brother's daughter was elected homecoming queen, and he came to me, and I could tell he was really hurt. He said, Ralph, you could wait one week. You could wait one week. I love Roger. I, I love Christy, his daughter. But I made commitments here. And, and maybe I could have put it off. I could have called the elders and said, could I wait a week? You see, there are always things that we can do to put off following God. And our commitments to Him. Over the past 28 years, Chris and I have heard from my family, not Chris's family, they've never said a word, my family for the last 28 years have said, Ralph, when are you moving back home? Ralph, when are you moving to Alabama? Just move to Birmingham, be closer. When are you moving down south? Finally last year, I don't know if it was my sister or her daughter, she looked at me and she said, Ralph, Ralph, you and Chris will never move back here with you. I looked at her and I said, no, probably not. Over the years, I've struggled with being away from family, especially when there's sickness and illness, death. My father died of cancer on five different occasions. Someone in my family would call me and say, Ralph, just want you to know, I know you can't be here, but the doctors have called us. We're together at the hospital because they're saying Dad can't make it through the night. I kept a suitcase ready to go. I wanted to be there. I wanted to be with my family. I wanted to be with my dad. But I, I couldn't. The elders were fantastic. They gave me a week to go down, just me. I went down a week with Chris and the boys. I have no doubt that's supposed to be here. I think my mother, who struggled for years, she broke her hip and she had to go into the nursing home. She could not hear. And before mom went in the nursing home, I called her most every day. I won't say every day, but at least four, five, six times a day. Didn't talk for a long time. I just said, Mom, I love you. 
how are you doing? Got to the nursing home. I can't remember, but either the phones didn't work well or I could not talk to my mother. She was alive. This woman that, that, that sacrificed for me, she was alive. But I couldn't make contact with her. I remember clearly mourning, not being able to speak to this woman that I loved. It hurt to be away, but I have no doubt that this is home. This is home. This place that a few years ago, Humboldt Park, that wasn't very loved, it's always been home. We go, we go down south and we love to see family, and I love a lot of things about the south, but we come home. We come home. You see, when we follow Jesus Christ, sometimes those things that may seem hard, that may be challenging, but they bring great joy. And as Christ talked with this man, he was saying, don't postpone what I've called you to do. We've seen we face rejection. We face risk. Relationships that are uprooted. Finally, if we follow Christ, it calls for us to renounce our past. We see this, the third person, the third person volunteers to follow Christ and asks again a reasonable request, I'll follow you, Lord. But first let me say farewell to those at home. And Jesus says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Again, this volunteer to follow Jesus, he seemed like he has a, a good request. That's reasonable. Just go home and say goodbye to family. The prophet Elijah was able to go home and when Elijah picked him and called him to come, he went home and told his parents goodbye. But I think if we look at this, Christ's response was, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom. Maybe what Christ is saying here, maybe he's, he's warning us to remember the future. It's easy in the midst of excitement to say, I'll follow Christ. But return to his old life. Longing for the old life, looking back, doesn't do anything to promote growth. If we're going to follow Christ, we have to stay focused. Not looking back, but focused to the future. If you remember the nation of Israel, look back in Exodus as they're out in the wilderness. They said, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. If only we died in Egypt. They go on and they say, there we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. They were looking back. They remember the good things. They're saying, if only they killed us there. Well, the nation of Israel looked back. Lot's wife looked back. The scripture says that she turned to a pillow of salt. 
Following Jesus is to not look back to our former ways. It requires a clean break. I still remember when I came to Christ out of drugs and alcohol and just immorality. I remember my pastor, he's such a wise man. He said, Ralph, your old friends, they're good people. And God loves them. He says, but Ralph, if you're going to walk with Jesus Christ, you've got a break. You can't go and sit there. You can't go and, and, and interact with them. Because, Ralph, it would be too big a temptation to look back. Too big a temptation to look back. We need a clean break. Following Christ is not an emotional decision of the moment, but a lifelong commitment. I still remember when I came to Christ, I, mean, I count the years. I've been a believer for a year. I've been a believer for two years. I've been a believer for three years. Five, ten, fifteen, twenty, twenty-five, now thirty-three years in God's grace. But if I hadn't had someone to say, Ralph, don't go back. Break. Clean. Break there. With that metaphor, no one who puts his hands to the plow and looks back is really referring to plowing with your eyes focused on an object ahead. Now, I know. I know you guys aren't farmers. And I, and I wasn't a farmer even though I was raised on a farm. But I remember one time... My dad said, Ralph, I want to teach you to plow. He said, Ralph, I want you to choose an object in front. He said, focus on it. Don't look anywhere else. Focus on that object. He says, you'll have a straight row. Now, you know and I know that my rows were not straight. Because I could not focus like my dad could. With that illustration or rather that metaphor there, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back refers to that. If we're going to walk with God, we need to focus. Focus to the future, not looking back. The Apostle Paul in Philippians 3.13 says, But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press, I press on toward the goal, the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Jesus Christ. Paul says, I, I, I strive, I, I look toward the future. Not looking back. In each of us today, if we're going to walk with Christ, if we're going to grow in Christ, we can't look back. Because if we look back, we can remember the good things from our past. We forget about all the, the shame, maybe, for some of us, or the guilt, or the hurt, or the emptiness. You see, Satan reminds us of the good times. But God says, don't look back. Don't look back. Darrell Bach, who is at Dallas Seminary, says that, we have to know that following Christ means that the sacred family ties are secondary. 
the sacred family ties are secondary to one's commitment to God. And we must know that following Christ means a break with one's past and its old ties. Everything else pales in comparison to Christ. Coming to Christ is on his terms. When we come to Christ and follow him, we come in humility, we come with meekness and brokenness, we come with a needy spirit. knowing that crying out for mercy because we know that we need it. For today we've seen that God doesn't want us to waste our time on the American dream. The American dream of a nice home, all the latest gadgets, a nice vehicle, a high income, leave us empty. And even though we may face rejection and risk in relationships that are uprooted, the whole thing of renouncing the past, following Christ, is the most fulfilling thing we can do in our lives. David Platt, in the book Radical, writes about Jeff, a businessman there in Birmingham, Alabama. And, and he says that Jeff writes, I'm paying more in taxes than I ever dreamed in making in one year. That says a lot. He says, we purchased our dream home in the exact location that we wanted. I purchased our BMW. We purchased our big beach house on the Gulf. We've had great vacations. He says, on top of that, he says, I was in a business that I truly loved in, a, in, in, in a, an industry that I was passionate about. But somehow, something was missing in Jeff's life. Of course, he had trusted Christ, but he was living the American dream. And on a trip to Honduras for one week or so, he visited a dump. He saw children and their mothers trying to find food. Jeff realized that he had a purpose for his life that's greater than pursuing the American dream. So Jeff walked away from the American dream. He's still in business. He still makes a lot of money. But his money is funneled now through a ministry that he and two friends developed that help people all around the world have clean water. God's calling us demands total commitment. He's calling us to abandon our comfort. All this familiar. He calls us to abandon our careers. He sometimes calls us to abandon our possessions. Sometimes he calls us to leave our friends and family in order to go and share the gospel. And ultimately, Jesus is calling us to abandon ourselves. David Platt says it so well. Some of us may exchange certainty for uncertainty, safety for danger, self-preservation for being willing to die for him. Just quickly, remember... This long, long rope that in your mind goes on forever. This is your life. This is your life. Are you living for eternity? Are you living for now? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we know 